I am the proud parent. Thank you, Will. He seems more comfortable than I do up here. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as your word has been read, and now uh, I discharge the duty to proclaim it, help me to proclaim your word faithfully, and help us all flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Those of us who are of a certain age will remember when our 42nd President of the United States testified, I did not have relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. And it was humiliating for him that he had to say it, but then it was doubly humiliating when it was proven that he was lying and that he did, in fact, have relations with the young White House intern. In Psalm 51, we are witnessing the confession of a king whose sin far outweighed Bill Clinton's. Uh, I'm going to assume that you know the story of David and his adultery and his murder. Uh, But whereas Bill Clinton tried to parse words to hide his sin, David multiplied his words to make sure that we, the reader, understand just how wickedly he had acted. In stark contrast to our 42nd president, David confessed and repented publicly by writing this psalm. And you notice here, It says, for the director of music. If you have your Bibles open, look just above verse 1. If you see just above verse 1, not where it has the in bold, creating me a clean heart, O God. That's the editors, the, the English Standard Version editors. But right underneath that, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. That's part of inspired scripture. Um, this is uh, very likely a note that David penned in. Uh, I'm writing this for the choir master. Uh, and add it to the song list in the sanctuary. In other words, David wanted Psalm 51 to be sung in the most public place where everyone in the kingdom would learn of his wickedness. I think this is what David meant in verse 13 when he said, as part of his repentance, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I think he had determined, I'm going to write this psalm and I'm giving it to the, to the choir master so that people can learn through my repentance uh, what it means to uh, repent before God. David had not only sinned against his wife, wives, um, uh, and against Bathsheba, he also sinned against Uriah, and he was well, he was deeply aware that he had harmed the nation of Israel by his sin. So he wrote Psalm 51 to set an example of how to, how to repent 
when one falls into grievous sin. And I think David was successful in writing Psalm 51 as an example of how to repent because Psalm 51 has become the outstanding example in Scripture of uh, how to repent. So it would, it would behoove us this morning to learn David's lessons. Truth be told, our repentance is often incomplete. Or worse, our repentance is only a thinly veiled attempt at self-justification rather than a true act of contrition and repentance. If you want to benefit from this sermon, if you want to be more complete in your repentance... I'd suggest that you bring before your mind's eye, not vocally, but before your mind's eye, um, a sin that you are currently struggling with. Maybe even a sin that has become an ongoing entrenched habit in your life. And so as you listen to this sermon, and as you see David's example of repentance, learn from him how you can be more thoroughgoing in your own repentance in order that you might be able to yank those sins out of your life by the deepest roots. There are many lessons we can learn about how to repent here in this passage. I had about nine or ten. We're only going to get to about six uh, this morning. Yesterday I preached a funeral and from Psalm 91 and I was determined to preach all 19 verses. And after I got to verse 7 or 8, I realized I probably should have stopped on verse, verses 1 through 4 and uh, it would have made the whole sermon a, a whole lot more beneficial. So I'm going to try and stop um, when I feel like it is time to stop because I, I have... At least two more sermons uh, worth of material on the cutting room floor. So the first lesson that we learned this morning is that true repentance takes personal responsibility. David takes personal responsibility for his sins. There's no blame shifting here in Psalm 51. He's making no excuses. He's pointing nowhere else. He's only pointing at himself. He does not say, yeah, I did it, but, or I sinned, however, there were these mitigating circumstances. We hear none of that kind of double speak. In verse 1, he speaks of my transgressions. In verse 2, he, speak, he says, my iniquity, my sin. In verse 4, he says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. <clears throat> Where there's a shifting of blame, it indicates that the repentance is not genuine. Parents have seen this. When you ask the child, did you do this? And they may say no, and you ask again, they may say no. You ask again. They say yes, but. And they bring in a mitigating circumstance. But you did not know what my sister did to me. I, but I had that toy first. That's why I hit her. You know, 
on and on. I sinned, but, or I sinned, however, exposes the heart as being not genuinely repentant. True repentance takes personal responsibility uh, for the sin committed. It is a pride-crushing, or it is pride-crushing to take full responsibility for our sins, but that is what God requires. We like to shift blame to someone else, to something else, onto our circumstances, and we do this because we want to reduce the implications of our own guilt. You know, the the implications or the consequences are really bad, so I don't want to 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 be seen as bad as um, as what I really was. So maybe the consequences will be lighter, or we don't like ourselves um, to seem so bad to others. Maybe we. We don't even like to seem that bad to ourselves. Um, we don't like recognizing that we are so bad that we would actually do what we've done. And we certainly don't like others knowing that we are capable of doing something so bad. So we minimize it, blame shift. Attempting to minimize our sin hides us however, from true repentance. And so, my exhortation to you is embrace your personal responsibility because that is the only way that you can truly embrace the grace of Christ that He gives us um, to truly repent. Uh, When you embrace uh, your personal responsibility, You embrace the grace of Christ that He gives us uh, to repent of our sins. And so don't overlook, or rather additionally, don't overlook how deeply David takes his personal responsibility. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He doesn't simply say, I did it. I sinned. Rather, he is saying, I am a sinner. It's one thing to acknowledge you've committed a sin. It is something else entirely to acknowledge that the sin originated from inside yourself. As Jim Eggert points out for any of you who have been through the um, inquirer's class, uh, it's one thing to say, I drank too much. It's another thing to say, I am a drunkard. And that's tantamount to what uh, David is saying here when he says uh, in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin my mother conceived me. He's not blaming his parents in verse 5. Rather, when he says, in sin my mother conceived me, he's confessing that in his his very nature was sinful, from before he was born. And this is the case for each one of us. From, con- from conception, our nature is corrupt. We all sin because from the time we appear in our mother's womb, we are sinners. In other words, David is saying his sin originated from within himself. 
which is in keeping with what the Lord Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 or 20 and 21, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From what, from, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And so it is from within that true repentance must start. Frankly, this is where true Christianity must start. You must be willing to acknowledge that your greatest problem is not that you have committed a few or maybe many sins along the way, but rather that your biggest problem is an internal corruption that is so deeply embedded in us that only God can address it. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is that true repentance expresses grief for sin. In verses 1 through 9, David's words are oozing with grief. He says his, his sin is ever before him. And so when he goes to bed at night, he fills his pillow with tears. When he wakes in the morning, he is grieved at what he has done. In verse 8, he says that the emotions of joy and gladness have abandoned him. He feels as if his bones have been crushed. Have you ever, um, have you ever deeply grieved over your sins? If so, you will understand what David's saying. You feel the weight of it. You feel like you can't stand up against it. And it, you, you feel like your whole body is just being pressured and crushed together. Your nerves... Or, or, um, or on end. David's grief here in Psalm 51 is instructive for us. He doesn't confess his sins as a laundry list and then move on. Move on. Oh God, forgive me for my lust, forgive me for my adultery, forgive me for my murder. In Jesus' name, amen. And then turn over in his bed and goes to sleep. No, David doesn't do that. David looks at his sin head on. He dwells on what he did in order that he might better understand how sinfully he had acted. He hates his sin, so he looks at it in the eye in order that he may see it for what it really is. There's a tendency for us to treat our sins as if it was sunlight you know, and so the sunlight would damage our eyes. We don't look at our sin head on. We, we avert our gaze. We shield our eyes so that we can protect our dignity and our pride. And that's, I believe, why we have recurring sins in our life. We're sorry, truly sorry that we sinned, but we've never grieved over them. But when we hate our sin, more like the Lord hates our sin, God will soon then make an end of our sin. And frankly, when we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. Looking at your sin and seeing it as uh, God sees it is spiritually healthy. 
So grieve over your grievous sins. Thirdly, David's, um, David's grief over his sin leads us to our third lesson. True repentance uh, sees sin in relation to God. It doesn't just leave sin in relation to others. David sinned against his wife or wives. He had multiple, sadly, wives. He sinned against Bathsheba using his authority as king um, to bring her into his bed. He sinned against Uriah by um, sinning against his wife, against Uriah's wife, and then murdered Uriah to cover it up. But David did not leave those sins at that level. Rather, uh, true repentance sees sin in relation to God. What am I talking about? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, against you, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David sinned against others, and that is the sin he's repenting of. But he's pointing us to the ultimate reference point for our sins. God is the offended party. It is God's laws that David transgressed. Spurgeon said all David's wrongdoing centered, culminated, and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. In other words... We commit all our sins in full view of God. And He sees our sins. He sees the contemplation of our sins in our hearts. He sees the motives that stand behind the contemplation of our sins. And He is grieved by them. Furthermore, every one of our sins, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, we not only committed the sin in full view of God, but our sins that we commit here in this life were laid upon the Lord Jesus in eternity past. Calvin Beisner says, Our sins may injure our fellow men once, but they injure the Lord of glory twice, once by contempt for Him and His law, and once by his bearing them in punishment on the cross. It is only when we see our sin in relation to God that we are able to see our sin for what it really is. Our fourth lesson is that true repentance appeals to God's grace. Look at verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. David appealed to the mercy of God even before he mentioned his sin. Then he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David does not want God to dole out just a few drops of mercy out of, out of his great reserves of mercy. Rather, he wants God to have mercy upon him. David wants God to have mercy upon David according to God's mercy. Well, what is God's mercy? It is infinite. He wants, David is, is pleading with God 
to have mercy upon him according to his infinite mercy. David knows that his sin is great, therefore he pleads for great mercy. David does not base his plea for mercy on anything but God himself. David doesn't doesn't try to remind God, Hey God, don't you remember how bravely I, I marched out there and confronted Goliath? Hey God, don't you remember how I spared Saul's life when he was pursuing me? Hey God, don't you remember uh, how you said earlier in my life that I was a man after your own heart? David doesn't do any of that. He doesn't base his pleas on any of his past achievements. He simply pleads for mercy that he does not deserve. He pleads for grace that he has not earned. He pleads for a love that he is unworthy to receive. And this is good news for us. If there was grace and mercy for David, there's grace and mercy for you and me. Our fifth lesson is that true repentance recognizes the need for atonement. Look at verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, what is hyssop? Hyssop was a, a plant in the ancient Near East, and it was used to, they would dip the hyssop plant in blood, and they would sprinkle uh, the altar, they would sprinkle the center, uh, they would s- dip hyssop in clean water and sprinkle you to set you apart as being clean. And this is the language of the temple sacrifice. It's the language of the atonement. And David is recognizing that my sins need to be atoned for. My sins need to be covered Um, in the blood. That is the only way, he says, that his sins can be clean. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's looking here for, for forgiveness of sins, for complete justification. Or he says in verse 1, Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Again in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. David is looking to the blood of the atonement. By faith, he was grasping the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the finished work of Christ that Christ had yet to uh, even perform. Book of uh, Romans says that God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, knowing that Christ was going to come. David trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. David was washed and made clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his sins were indeed cleansed. No matter what sin you might have, charged against your account, if it is covered in the blood of Jesus, your soul, as he says in verse 7, is cleansed. It is whiter than snow in God's presence.
It's interesting. Verses 16 and 17. He says, sacrifices are not effective. He says, sorry, I keep having to turn back and forth on my pages. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, had he gone to the, the, the uh, sanctuary, had he gone to the temple and offered uh, the blood of bulls and goats, but his heart was still yearning for his sin, he's saying it would have been ineffectual. That God looks for a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a soul that is grieving over their sin. And so you simply mouth your request, God, forgive me of this sin, that sin, while secretly harboring that sin in your heart, while not grieving over that sin. God says... It won't be forgiven. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and grieve over your sins. True repentance. And this is our sixth and last lesson. Seeks to be sanctified. Verses 10 and 11. David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What David here is praying for is not justification. Rather, he is praying for sanctification. Lord, set my soul back right. Purge me, cleanse me, not only in forgiving me of my sins, but changing me. Create in me a clean heart. Lord, you've, cle- you've, you've cleaned my soul, it is whiter than snow. Clean my heart, purify my motives. Help me to be holy by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I've grieved your spirit to use the language of Paul in Ephesians 5. So don't take your spirit away from me. Renew in me a right spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, his repentance is an ongoing process of seeking to be holy before God. Seeking to be sanctified. True faith is a repenting faith. True repentance is a believing repentance. And he's using here all the way through Psalm 51. The language of the laundry. Now the laundry is not like we have today. And this will be my concluding illustration. When I went to Uganda uh, three years or so ago. I took all my old jeans and my old shorts, the things that were just so stained that the washing machine, even though we have these fancy front loaders and top loaders and all this other stuff with now the the pouches, you know, and and that is supposed to take out everything, 
the clothes I took to Uganda were so stained that uh, my, what I was going to do was, at the end of my trip, I was going to just throw them in the garbage. And so I, I figured, you know, I'll take them. Uh, and uh, Dr. Krabendam had some help that would uh, wash the clothes. I figured they'd throw them in some soapy water, stir them around a couple of times, uh, rinse them out, and I would get them back. I gave the, my uh, clothes... Uh, to some of his the the ladies that he had hired to do our laundry, and I got those clothes back, and they were clean. These ingrained stains were gone. You could barely see a faint shadow of where uh, mud and grime used to be. Now my clothes were so thin that they they looked like they might fall apart, but they were clean. And the process was, is they take your clothes out on a rock, and they put the soap on it, and they scrub, and they scrub, and they use abrasive material, and scrub, and scrub, and, and scrub it more on a rock, and then beat it against a rock. And it, like I said, it wore out my clothes. I would have had to throw them away anyway, but they were remarkably clean. I, I had given her 13,000 uh, 13, shillings to clean my clothes. And then when I saw my clothes and how clean they were, and I realized how much work she had done in cleaning them, I gave her another 13,000, uh, no, uh, 30,000 shillings as a tip, twice as much as I had paid her. And she didn't understand because I was fully understanding the effort that she had gone through. My wife has not gone through that kind of effort to clean my clothes. <laughs> um, and nor would she. You know, we have the, the, the washing machines. And David is saying, there's effort that is required in repentance. It's not simply let go and let God and ask for forgiveness. He's saying true repentance, true grieving over your sin will result in a, a purified heart. But that doesn't just happen. It happens only by God's grace. But as David weeps over his sin, as David confesses his sin, as David looks head on at his sin... That is the way David's heart was purified. Are you willing to live with your sin? Are you willing to let it be an ongoing, habitual drag on your life? Look to Psalm 51. Pray through Psalm 51. Repent after the example of Psalm 51. And David Indeed, or rather, God indeed will restore you not just in justification, but will cleanse you in sanctification. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy to us. God, help us to be a repenting people because we know that true faith is a repenting faith.
true repentance is a believing repentance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.